Let's open our Bibles again together this evening to Psalm 130. Psalm 130. This evening and next Sunday evening, we're taking a short break from Deckard's series on the Gospel of Luke, and I'm going to preach Psalm 130 in two parts. This evening, we'll cover the first half, verses 1 through 4, and next Sunday evening, Lord willing, we'll cover verses 5 through 8. This is a psalm about being down in the depths, down in the depths of guilt, primarily because of sin, and also how to get out of the depths through prayer, through forgiveness, through waiting on the Lord and hoping in the Lord. And since we sin every day, sadly, and since we experience many other kinds of depths in the Christian life, I trust this psalm will be a great help to us by the blessing of God. So let's pray and ask for his blessing and then we'll begin. Let's pray. Oh Lord, as we come again to your word this evening, we recognize that we need the help of your spirit if we're going to rightly understand and apply your word to our hearts and lives. We admit that we cannot do it on our own. We don't have it in us. But you are sufficient. You are almighty and full of grace. And so we ask you to help us. We ask you to work in us and minister your word to our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Psalm 130, reading the whole psalm, though as I said, we'll focus on verses one through four this evening. This is the word of God. A song of ascents. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities." As we look at verses one through four this evening, we're gonna do so under the three headings that are there in your sermon notes. First, we're gonna consider briefly the title of the psalm, A Song of Ascents. Then we'll look at verses one and two, Out of the Depths, and then three and four, Forgiveness and Fear. You can see there at the beginning of the psalm that the title of the psalm is A Song of Ascents. There's a whole group of psalms called the Songs of Ascents. It starts with Psalm 120, and goes all the way through Psalm 134, 15 psalms total. Charles Spurgeon called it the little psalter within the psalter. And each of these psalms has the title A Song of Ascents, and some of them also name the author, usually David. Our psalm doesn't name its author. Maybe it was David. We're not sure. But these psalms, these songs of ascents, as far as we can tell, were sung by God's people as they journeyed to Jerusalem for the three annual feasts as they made the ascent up to Jerusalem. One commentator pointed out, pointed out that Joseph and Mary would have sung these psalms as they made their way to the city with the young Jesus. 
And Jesus would have sung them himself when he went up to Jerusalem with his disciples. It's pretty neat to think about. So our psalm, Psalm 130, being a song of ascents, would normally have been sung by God's people as they made their way up to Jerusalem to worship God. And before we look at verses one through four, I just wanna say something briefly about singing. Since the title reminds us this would have been sung, the people of God have always been a singing people. We are a people who sing to the Lord, especially corporately, as we've done this evening. And there are a number of reasons for that, but let me briefly mention three. First, we sing because God has commanded us to sing. Sing to the Lord is a command we find again and again in the Psalms, often in our call to worship that's read at the beginning of the worship service. And we sing because we simply want to obey that call. We want to obey God's command. Sometimes when we come to worship, we may not feel like singing, but the simple reminder that we are commanded by our God to sing can help. You can ask him for enabling grace to obey that simple command from the heart. Second, we sing because God has created us to sing. He's given us lungs and vocal cords and a voice box and a mouth, not just for talking, but also for singing and primarily for singing his praise. And third, we sing because God has redeemed us to sing. After God redeemed his people from slavery in Egypt and brought them into the promised land, it says in Exodus 15, 1, then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him my Father's God, and I will exalt him. We are a singing people because we are a redeemed people. And we sing because we have something to sing about. So God has commanded us to sing, he has created us to sing, and he has redeemed us to sing. And so we sing. And sometimes our songs are songs of joy, and sometimes they're songs of lament or confession, as is the case with Psalm 130. So let's look more closely now at the first two verses of this psalm out of the depths, see what we can learn from them. I want us to notice three things here in these first two verses. First, notice where the psalmist is. He's in the depths. Verse one, out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. He's in the depths. The depths of what? Well, in terms of the imagery, it's either the depths of the sea or the depths of a pit. But in terms of what the imagery points to, the psalmist doesn't come right out and say it, but based on the fact that he pleads for mercy at the end of verse two, and mainly based on the fact that in verse three, he talks about iniquities and guilt and forgiveness, as well as down in verse eight, he's probably in the depths of guilt and conviction of sin. Out of those depths, I cry to you, Oh Lord, the biggest reason we have for being down in the depths is because of our sin. There can certainly be other reasons for being down there. Sometimes it's because of fear or physical pain perhaps or depression or overwhelming anxiety or grief or just simple exhaustion. 
various other kinds of troubles and trials that we face as we go through life in this fallen world. But the biggest reason we have for being down in the depths is our own sin, as was the case with the psalmist here. Because our sin is a bigger issue than our sorrow or suffering. The reason sorrow and suffering exist in our world is because of sin, ever since Adam sinned in the garden. And it's important to recognize that our sin is our biggest problem. And we're going to consider the solution to it as we go through this psalm. And by the way, it turns out that the solution is largely the same whether the problem is sin or something else. The way out is basically the same no matter what depths we're in. So whatever depths you may be in this evening, I trust the Lord will help you through these verses. But the point I want us to get here is that our our biggest problem and therefore our biggest concern should be our sin. That's the biggest reason we have for being down in the depths. I think it's also good for us to recognize that even as Christians, we can find ourselves down in the depths at times. Sometimes, to be sure, we're up on the mountaintop in terms of our experience, and often we're just carrying on in the valley, but sometimes we are down in the depths. And I think it can be helpful to just know that, that that's going to be our experience sometimes, and we don't need to be shocked or surprised or thrown off by the fact that we're down in the depths, because that's sometimes where God has us for his own wise and good reasons. And we're not alone in that experience either. That too can help. When we're down in the depths, we can know that others have been down there before us. We can look around and see their initials carved on the wall, as it were. We can look and see etched on the wall, David was here. And below that, so was Paul and countless other believers. In fact, all believers at one time or another have been down in the depths, so we are not alone in our experience. So the psalmist is down in the depths of guilt and conviction of sin. That's where he is. Notice secondly, what he's doing down there. Verse one again. Out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord. So he's praying. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. He's down in the depths but he's praying from the depths. But these are not just normal, ordinary prayers. These are prayers of desperation. He's crying to God from down in the depths. He's asking God to hear his voice, to hear the voice of his pleas for mercy. Sometimes our prayers are gonna be fairly normal and ordinary, and that's okay. But other times, We need to cry to God, to plea for mercy from the depths. And we just need to make sure we have that setting on our prayer dial. That sometimes we cry to God and plea for his mercy from those depths. This is part of the solution. No matter what kind of depths we're in, that we turn to God in prayer and plea for his mercy. And we can always do that. Always. Even when we find ourselves at the very bottom, we can still cry out to God. Remember what Corey ten Boom said? 
author of The Hiding Place, who'd seen many horrors in a Nazi concentration camp. She said, there is no pit so deep, but Christ is deeper still. There's no pit you will ever find yourself in as a believer that's too deep for Christ. Christ is deeper still. Underneath are his everlasting arms. There's no pit you'll ever find yourself in as a believer where God is not there with you. He is there and he can hear you when you cry to him. As William Plumer put it, there are no depths from which we may not look to the throne of heaven. So when you're down in the depths, don't become silent toward God. Cry to him. Don't forget God. Don't neglect God. Don't substitute other things for God to try to cope with being down in the depths. Turn to him. Cry to him. Trust in him. And do what the psalmist does here. Plea for mercy. Plea for what you need and yet don't deserve. The mercy of God. Recognize that God doesn't owe you mercy. Don't plea for justice. Plea for mercy. Plumer again writes, Sinners never approach God in a becoming manner till they have the spirit of the publican. That is the tax collector in Luke 18 who cried, you remember, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Also, pray out loud. I would encourage you to do as the psalmist seems to do here. I cry to you. Hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. Pardon me. Well, I almost short out my mic with water. <clears throat> Pray out loud is the point that we're thinking about. Praying out loud is not necessary. It can be very helpful, though, as it focuses the mind and helps you remember that God is real. And that prayer isn't just thinking thoughts in your own head, but speaking to the God who is there. Pray out loud. One more thing we should notice here in these first two verses, then we'll turn to verses three and four. Notice what's implied here about the Lord. That he can be cried to from the depths and that he can hear us. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. He can be cried to from the depths. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. The implication being that he does hear our voice, which is clearly taught in other places in Scripture. He can be cried to from the depths. Certainly he is transcendent. He's far above us. His ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. He is the infinite creator and we are finite creatures. He is holy, holy, holy. We are sinful, sinful, sinful. And yet, he can be cried to from the depths. He is not deistically distant. He is omni 
present and he is a God who can be cried to from the depths. And he can hear us no matter where we are. Kids, do you know this about God? I trust that many of you do. Do you know that God can hear you when you pray no matter where you are? You don't have to be at church. You don't have to be at prayer meeting. You don't have to be at the dinner table. Those are all good places to pray and he does hear you when you pray to him there. But you can pray to God anywhere you are and he hears you. You can pray on the playground. You can pray in the car. You can pray when you're at school. You can pray even when you're far away on a long trip and God hears you. Psalm 139 says, Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. No matter where you go, God can hear you when you pray to him. Well, the psalmist is praying to God from the depths of his guilt and conviction of sin. And in verses 3 and 4, he focuses on the justice of God and the forgiveness of God. First in verse 3, he focuses on the justice of God. He says there, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? The implication being no one could stand. If you marked iniquities, if you counted sins, if you kept tabs, if you kept a record of wrongs, nobody could stand. Before the bar of God's justice, all of us are guilty. That's what we recognize in our first membership vow. All of us who are members of this church have affirmed before God and each other that we acknowledge ourselves to be sinners in the sight of God who justly deserve his displeasure and who are without hope save in his sovereign mercy. That's the first membership vow. We are sinners in the sight of God, not in the sight of the world or in the sight of our culture or in the sight of ourselves. Those things are not the standard of what's right and wrong. God is the law of God and the character of God. And we acknowledge that when we compare ourselves to that standard, when we compare ourselves to God, We are sinners in his sight. And therefore, we justly deserve his displeasure, his wrath, his judgment, and are without hope, save in his sovereign mercy, which we'll come to in verse four. William Plumer again writes, who among men could abide the scrutiny of omniscient purity if the Lord should deal with them in untempered severity? The purest man on earth ought to acknowledge his entire sinfulness and dependence on the mercy of God. Have you ever stopped and thought about how many times you've sinned in your life? Sins of commission and sins of omission? If the Lord marked all those iniquities, if he wrote them all down, how long that list would be. But our problem is actually more than the sum of our sins. As our shorter catechism puts it, the sinfulness of that estate whereinto man fell 
consists in the guilt of Adam's first sin, the want or lack of original righteousness, and the corruption of his whole nature, which is commonly called original sin, together with all actual transgressions which proceed from it. So we've got Adam's sin. The guilt of Adam's sin is imputed to us because he represented us in the garden. Then we've got a corrupted nature and then we've got all the actual transgressions that proceed from our corrupted nature. That long list of sins we've committed in our lives. So the list of sins, as bad as it is, is not the full extent of our problem. It's only the symptoms of the underlying disease, which is our sinful heart, our corrupted nature. We have Adam's sin, we have a sinful heart, and we have all the sins that come from our sinful heart. And in light of all of this, who could stand before a holy and just God? No one. But, verse 4 says, with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. With the Lord there is forgiveness. With God, there is not only the threat of judgment, but also the offer of forgiveness. That forgiveness ultimately comes through Jesus Christ. Only Christ can save us. There's only two options, really. One, the Lord marks your iniquities and then judges you for them in hell forever. Or two, the Lord marks your iniquities and then forgives you for them through Christ. Either way, the Lord marks your iniquities because he's holy and just, but because he's also gracious, there's an option for them to be forgiven. And that is offered to all in the gospel. It is offered to all who will repent of sin and put their faith in Christ for their salvation. Only Christ can save us. The only way out of the depths of guilt is to have your sins forgiven by Christ. There are so many people in this world who are down in the depths. Down in the depths of they don't even know what necessarily. Not genuine spirit wrought conviction of sin for many. But they're down in the depths nonetheless. And yet despite all they do, they can't get out. Think about how messy and miserable the lives of many of the rich and famous often are. So often they're down in the depths and no amount of money, no amount of fame, no amount of success, no amount of recognition or popularity can get them out of the depths. Only the gospel can fix their problems. Their greatest problem, the problem of their sin against God and all other problems, all other depths. Only the gospel can get us out of the depths. Only the forgiveness of our sins can get us out of the depths of guilt. With the Lord, there is forgiveness. And with him alone, William Plumer, none but he against whom all sin is committed can either remit its guilt or destroy its power. No one else can save. Acts 4.12 
And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Like it says at the end of our psalm, in verses 7 and 8, O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. If what you need is forgiveness, and all of us need the forgiveness of our sins, there's nowhere else to go but to Christ. There's no one else to turn to but the Lord. And with him there is forgiveness. And with him alone. But there's a point to forgiveness. And it's mentioned there at the end of verse 4. That you may be feared. The point of having our sins forgiven is so that we would fear the Lord. So that we would walk in reverent obedience to our Heavenly Father. The point of having all your sins forgiven is not so you can just go out and do whatever you want because it's all forgiven anyway. No, the point is that you would walk in the fear of the Lord. Paul says in Romans 6, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Forgiveness is not meant to lead to license. Forgiveness is meant to lead to the fear of the Lord. And on the flip side of that coin, we need to recognize that it is forgiveness that leads to the fear of the Lord. We don't fear the Lord so that we can be forgiven. First, we are forgiven, and then that forgiveness produces the fear of the Lord in our lives. It is grace that leads to godliness. It is assurance of forgiveness that leads to holiness. John Calvin said that men never serve God aright unless they know he is a gracious and merciful being. We don't fear the Lord because he's a cruel tyrant or a harsh taskmaster. We fear him because he's a reconciled father. The strongest most durable, most powerful fuel for our obedience is the grace and forgiveness that is ours through Jesus Christ. Remember the parable Jesus told Simon the Pharisee in Luke 7. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. Love flows from forgiveness. And if we understand how much we've been forgiven, we will love 
much. We will walk in the fear of the Lord. Guilt, then grace, then gratitude is the sequence. It's the sequence in the opening verses of this psalm. We recognize our guilt. We embrace the grace that is ours through Christ. And then we respond with gratitude to God in terms of how we live our lives. So last word this evening. When you're in the depths, look to Christ. Cry to the Lord. No matter how deep down in the pit you are, look up to the throne of heaven by prayer. Remember the forgiveness you have through Christ. Remember how much you've been forgiven. And in light of that forgiveness, walk in the fear of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that with you there is forgiveness. And we thank you for the forgiveness of our sins that we have through faith in Christ. And we pray that the fruit of that forgiveness would be that we would fear you in our hearts and lives more and more for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's take a minute now during the meditation on the word to think and pray about what we've heard and then we'll sing together.